Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 22nd of November. It's my sister's birthday, so happy birthday to my sister. Um, and today we have an episode. It's just me. Tammy will be back next week. So all of you who got our announcement last week, this is not some sort of fake uh, thing where we're saying, oh, actually, the show just ended and Tammy left. No, no, Tammy will be back next week. We're going to keep doing the show until the middle of December. And then Tammy is going to... Uh, work on her book and do the things that that um, she said last episode that, you know, she is going to continue to do. The show, as we said, is going to continue. Um, and we are really excited this week to have uh, with us a student organizer for Columbia University Apartheid Divest. Uh, that is a coalition of student organizations that see Palestine as a vanguard for our collective liberation. Um, this is, I'm reading from their statement. Um, we are a continuation of the Vietnam anti-war movement and the movement to divest from apartheid South Africa. We support freedom and justice for the Palestinian people and for all people. We know that true collective safety will arise when everyone has access to clean air, clean water, food, housing, education, healthcare, freedom of movement and dignity. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I wanted to start off by sort of talking a little bit about this idea of uh, a, now, you know, a coalition of student groups and what that is and how, what that constitutes on campus. I think that the word like coalition is used quite a bit, right? And it's hard to understand exactly what that is. But like, what is Columbia University apartheid divest in terms of like a coalition? Initially, the coalition started out of a group of about 15 student organizations in response um, after the events of October 7th, um, 2023. And it started as a loose collective of groups who signed and worked and released on a joint statement in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Right. And then, as you may know, a week and a half ago, the administration arbitrarily out of the blue, suspended uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace. Right. And that just really activated what was already an existing collective and moved us to formalize a coalition that is now at 75 student organizations and growing by the day. We exploded. We grew from, again, I want to emphasize 15 student organizations to 75 organizations over the course of a week and a half. I also want to mention the thing that this is a very diverse group of uh, student organizations. It's the most racially, ethnically, and religiously diverse group on campus. And I see like the Black Students Organization, the Students Workers of Columbia, um, the Sunrise Columbia Student Worker Solidarity, mm. the Somali Student Organization, the Asian American Alliance, the Columbia Queer Alliance, African Students Association. Um, Alianza, just a, the right, Alianza, right? Mm -hmm. The poet, like even Poetry Slam has gotten involved in this, right? I'm not going to list through all the 75, but you said that this sort of this outcropping of of support and and the idea of an organization for this came out of directly out of this decision that happened when Columbia decided to suspend the two groups, right? Can you, can you take me back to that decision? Because that's something that I was really interested in. Listeners of this show who are very dedicated might know, but I don't think that many people do that. I also am, you know, alma mater of sorts of Columbia University. I went there for graduate work for two years. And while I would never say that getting a master's of fine arts is anything other than me <laughs> sort of donating money to Columbia's endowment, that... <laughs> And that I only really spent two years there. I never felt connected to the campus. But I did work in the life. I, I felt like my connection to the campus came from other ways other than my education, which was I worked in the library. I was the guy who worked in the circulation desk. If you walk up the stairs, there's always some <laughs> unhappy looking graduate students sitting there getting, you know, as part of work study. <laughs> that was me for two years. Um, and uh, it's certainly a campus I'm very familiar with. It's an administration that I'm very familiar with. And this decision... Um, you know, that to suspend these two groups was surprising to me. I didn't understand the, the, the move. Um, 
that it felt pretty unprecedented. I think up to that point, only the only place where student organizations had been outright banned was Brandeis, right? Um, and that that it felt repressive, overly repressive in a way that I felt would ultimately probably be counter uh, counterproductive if the idea was to keep student protest at a minimum. Just to give you a little bit more context of what was happening, um, the day before, uh, we had a national shut it down for Palestine action. And this was a peaceful art installation um, and a walkout from class. The day before, the administration was already individually singling out vulnerable undergrads for retaliation and pressure. How are they singling people out for retaliation? The administration was individually, powerful figures in the administration right. were individually emailing what who they thought were, quote, leaders of these student organizations, saying that they would potentially face disciplinary sanctions and group sanctions um, for to, moving forward with this event, like two days prior. Of course, our loose coalition immediately mobilized and we drafted a response outlining all the different problematic things, including Colombia. For listeners who might not be aware, Colombia has a very unrealistic 10-day business day rule um, where they require 10 days in advance for any kind of sanctioned event right. to take place on campus. And we highlighted in our letter that 10 days is essentially censorship in all but name. And because it incredible, incredibly limits our capacity to respond to a devastating genocide that refuses to slow down. And that in 10 days, at least 2,000 Palestinians have perished from Israeli airstrikes. So for us, you know, this 10-day policy was just untenable. And the Columbia Spectator just released an article showing how the administration changed policies in the middle of the night for student organizations. Um, about, I believe it was about 10 to 12 days before the actual suspension of SJP, which is Students for Justice Palestine. I'm just going to use those acronyms. And JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace. We wrote this collective response to these administrators saying this is very extremely troubling. We would like a meeting to discuss. We can work potentially. We were not promising anything, but we could work with like a three-day business day rule if the university, like that allows us to prepare more accordingly. However, immediately the day after, which was that Friday, we get this public announcement from a made-up committee called the Special Committee on Public Safety. Completely made up, didn't exist prior all key stakeholders of the university governance, including the university senate, student governing bodies, no one knew about the existence of this committee, and they arbitrarily um, announced the suspension of SJP and JVP. I'm just reading for the New York Times report on it. It says that they had violated university policy, but that the Times also points out the university did not elaborate on how exactly the groups did that, except to say that they had held, quote, unauthorized events that included unspecified quote threatening rhetoric and intimidation like what what is that reference to we have no idea and as someone who was at that protest where no threatening rhetoric was named it was a mystery and this past friday there was a university senate meeting and jerry rosberg who was the administrator who sent out the email banning sjpjvp Despite multiple questioning, what is this threatening rhetoric um, or intimidation rhetoric that you refer to? Uh, he wasn't able to answer the question. He, despite multiple pressures, and this is just from a personal capacity, I have a suspicion that he's referring to the phrase from the river to the sea. Right. Um, but here's what I personally believe. And this is, again, I'm speaking in an individual capacity. We're seeing this troubling language from administrators from Harvard, uh, Georgetown, or George Watt, like other, Penn, other schools where in Congress, with the censure of Rashida Tlaib, Representative right. Rashida Tlaib for saying this, it's deeply troubling. And this interpretation 
of, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, as genocidal is completely bad faith. It's incorrect. It's false. It's as silly and nonsensical as saying land back from Native Americans in the U.S., saying that land back is a call for genocide against U.S. citizens. Right. I mean, I find that the I found that the sort of close parsing of that phrase in itself to be like somewhat baffling myself. And I will say that, like, I do. I think I imagine that if you are if you believe that that is a genocidal call, right, and that you are a student on campus and you hear people chanting it, that I do understand why you would think that that was a intimidating phrase or something like that. But it also seems strange to me, as you said, that um, universities themselves have taken a definitive stance on it, or at least that's what it seems like, right? Like I did read the letter from the Harvard president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, I believe is her name. Um, and also, like what this suggests is that the that in terms of these institutions, the debate over that phrase, which I do think there should be debate over that phrase, just because I think there should be debate over everything, right? Um, and that I do think that probably some people sincerely feel like that that phrase is threatening to them in some sort of way. Even if you disagree with that idea, you can have that type of conversation. What seems to suggest to me is that to these institutions, that question is not an open question for debate, right? It is one that mm. is sort of unilaterally decided upon that mm-hmm. and that um and that if that is the phrase in question at Columbia, I I have no way of knowing, right? Because just like you, like I've been reading about it, but I don't, you know, like this is not something that there's been an official statement about. But I imagine that that is the phrase in question. And just like you said, we still have no idea because the university no has been not transparent, despite repeated questioning about what they are referring to as intimidating rhetoric. What is it like there? Like how central has this? has this war and, and opposition war or support of the war, like the sort of, how, how, how central has it become to student life? It's funny. I just want to name because I think national perception. And if you were just to read statements from like certain national organizations or alumni donors, you would think that Columbia is this bastion of pro-Palestinian, like the administration is so pro-Palestine because all these alumni and outside, or whether it's like faculty who are removed or saying Columbia is not doing enough, they're letting the pro-Palestine students run rampant. And there's a lot of racist coded language implying that, and not just coded, sometimes explicit, calling us terrorists. You know, there are flyers going around campus calling pro-Palestine students terrorists. But returning back to the point of campus climate, Colombian administration is being painted as so pro-Palestine, but that could not be further from the truth. Colombia is vehemently anti-Palestine, and the university has set a dangerous precedent by erasing the Palestinian struggle through one-sided decisions and emails. Like, students can count, we can count the number of one-sided emails that don't even mention the word Palestine, that don't even mention any Palestinian sense of Palestinian suffering or death. And I think students are angry. Students are really, really angry. And I think it also shows in the fact that, you know, I personally don't believe the efficacy of university task forces. But I think it's very telling that the university only announced a task force on anti-Semitism, which, to be clear for the record, our coalition is deeply committed to dismantling anti-Semitism because we believe anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and racism are all cut from the same cloth. But outside of that, I think it's very telling that the university only committed, created a committee for anti-Semitism, which is staffed for people who may not know. The faculty who are leading it are for, believe in a, def- have been, very public proponents of a definition of anti-Semitism that includes anti-Zionism or this idea that criticism of the state of Israel is in itself anti-Semitic. And it's very troubling that this committee has been staffed by powerful faculty who are forwarding this definition publicly, but then the university doesn't even mention a peep or create a committee about Islamophobia. Every single time a pro-Palestine protest happens on campus, the university announces that they're closing all the gates 
something that has not happened in decades. The main Columbia University campus is famous for having public access. But every, without fail, every single time, um, the gates have closed. And it's a very symbolic chilling of the speech. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of a divestment. Apartheid divest is a very, very evocative name. And I think that for anybody who has learned, thought anything about student protests or learned about the history of it, like the reference is quite clear. It's something that you make clear in your statement, which is that part of it is that you're drawing inspiration or you feel like you are a continuation of the movement to divest from apartheid South Africa, right? Um, and that was, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that I looked into quite a bit uh, during my own journalism career. And the central question that I had for that was just like, why, is, why were these so effective and so large and so sustained? What part of that is important to, to, to you? And how do you see the linkages to this, to this movement right now? I don't know if you know this history, but I also learned this this past month that Columbia University was the first Ivy to divest from South Africa, right. the apartheid. And I think that is something that is really inspiring to us students and something to model after. And, you know, in a personal capacity, I think I'm speaking about this on why I think divestment feels like such a strong mobilization is that for multiple reasons. One, I think this is building on the legacy, the BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanction movement, that the Palestinian people themselves modeled after South African divestment. And I think for us, I think why divestment feels so powerful is that getting Columbia University to divest its endowment and its investments from Israeli apartheid is the most tangible thing that we as students have power over. Right. Divestment is a really powerful thing that we can take action every single day to make sure that our tuition dollars are not going to a death-making, war-making machine. Um, and I think that's why it's so personally resonant for me and why it's so powerful and tangible for us and it's achievable and i think that's the other thing right it's achievable it's been done before and i think it can be done um yeah it's one of the interesting thing about a divestment question right because like i think that one of the things that's always a bit murky although i think that some of the divestment south africa protests did do that which was just like okay um, outside of sending a signal, right, that this very famous institution has decided to stop economically supporting, um, supporting the state that, uh, you know, like, it's like, okay, well, what does that actually do? And that it, the idea of the achievable part is the most interesting to me, which is that like, it's, uh, it ties you up personally in the stakes, right? It ties you up personally in terms of, hey, this is like either my family or me or I'm taking out loans. Like this money is going to this stuff. Like I, I don't support that. And then also it's a way in which I think that students can sort of center it on campus in a way that is less like that is less abstract, right? So like what, what, what do you think like divest, Columbia University divesting from, from Israel, right? Like what, is that, what does that actually do? I want to clarify that divestment not only means economic investments, but also our academic investments, because Colombia is proposing to open a new global center in Tel Aviv. And we are calling on the university to cancel the Tel Aviv Global Center because, you know, it's this idea that Colombia affiliates, Palestinian affiliates, or any, according to Israel's new laws, anyone who criticizes the state of Israel or expresses support for BDS is theoretically banned from entering Israel. So this is, there's this idea that if Colombia opens a global center in Tel Aviv, Palestinian affiliates and others who express support of Palestine will be restricted from accessing this quote-unquote study abroad global center program. And it would violate Colombia's very own non-discrimination policy. I think in basic terms, it would mean that our endowment stops investing yeah, in these companies that profit from Israeli apartheid. I'm reading from your from the statement that you 
published in the Spectator, right? The group did, and it says that we believe in liberation. All systems of oppression are interlinked. The fates of the people of Palestine, Kurdistan, Sudan, Congo, Armenia, Ireland, Puerto Rico, Korea, Guam, Haiti, Hawaii, Kashmir, Cuba, Turtle Island, and other colonized bodies are interconnected, right? I want to talk about the Korean part. I am Korean and you are Korean as well, right? (laughs) Yes. And it's something that Tammy and I talked about on the last episode because it was an interesting question. Does you being Korean actually inform the the ways in which you think about it? Sometimes people look at me and sometimes I'm the only Korean in these organizing spaces. Sometimes Um, the undergrads are really rad and awesome. Um, but the, amongst but, the graduate students, they're never. But amongst there. the graduate students, you know, when I'm the only Korean student, and sometimes the question arises, like, why are you here? You know, like, what what is your stake in this as an Asian? Right. And I think for me, that has everything to do with Korea, but also the larger history of Asia and my identity as an Asian American. Because, you know... Korea not only suffered from Japanese colonization, the Nakba in Palestine in 1940 happened the same year as the division of Korea along the 38th parallel with U.S. taking over the South. And I learning about this history of how the U.S. put out three-year systematic military campaign with right-wing Korean forces of killing and exterminating tens of thousands of Korean leftists and people who were on striking and people who were organizing people's committees all in the name of, quote, anti-communist. Because this idea of people coming together to, to forward land reform, gender equality, that the Korean people were doing in the aftermath of Japanese liberation was seen as a threat to U.S. imperial interests. So for me, this has everything to do with like my identity as a Korean. You said this line at the very beginning, that we see Palestine as the vanguard for our collective liberation. And I think it's a genuine personal belief that if liberation can happen in Palestine, it can happen anywhere, including Korea. I want to talk a little bit about the space, you know, like Asian kids, it's something I think about quite a bit, right? And I wrote about this in my book, and I just, I think about it as just like the question of, I think there are a lot of young Asian people who are very activated, and a lot of them listen to this podcast, right? But Or some of them do. And that there, but that generally there is a type of uh, political agnosticism, I think that is happening, especially at elite universities like Columbia, where people worked very hard to get in those schools, right? And that they feel that they have a very clear path forward where they want to make money. They kind of want to just be left alone, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't mean that they're less Asian or whatever like that, right? In Mm -hmm. fact, a lot of the people who are the most agnostic, I think, are probably coming from places where they are part of a large Asian group, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what has it been like on campus for you seeing these people? I'm sure you think about it, right? Like, I mean, how 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 has the Asian community in Colombia responded? I do know that from going there, there's a lot of Asian people at Columbia. Yeah. Um, the undergrads have been incredible. Um, and the Asian students on the undergrad level have been showing, and you can see that in the coalition list. It's, right. So amazing to see. On the graduate level, it's a different story. And I will just say personally, it's been really disappointing, frankly, to see this political agnosticism. And I think some of that political agnosticism from graduate students who are Asian, I think emerges from this, like, I think what you were hinting at, like, I think this belief that the model minority myth is going to keep us safe. I think South Asians have this during the war on terror with the immediate criminalization and surveillance of South Asian Muslim communities. But for East Asians in particular, I think there's this false sense of security that we're going to be safe and that we're, that if we align ourselves with whiteness, that we're going to be okay. I hope we can learn these lessons because I think it should be troubling to us that my member of Congress sends out weekly emails saying that America's number one enemy is China and the the Chinese Communist CCP, Chinese Communist Party, in quotes, 
Um, I think I'm really troubled as an Asian American, as a Korean American, seeing how the U.S. is drumming up its war machine. We're seeing like how the U.S. is itching for war with China. What do you think the difference is between the grad students and the undergrads? So, because like, you know, like I have, you know, I would, I I don't know, you know, like it it is surprising to me that the, 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 uh, the stereotype goes that like the grad students are all like much more radical than the students, right? Because students are so young and the grad students have had more time to have their heads infected by theory and all this sort of stuff. They've also (laughs) spent a longer time being disconnected from quote, the real world. Right. And so they end up going you know, they like sometime in year seven of their PhD uh, in sociology, they all start throwing bricks and, you know, becoming radical, like fake radicals. That's the stereotype that the grad students are the ones that are radical, right? Like, what do you think accounts for this idea? It's very interesting to me that the students, that the undergrads are the ones that are much more participatory than the graduate students, at least when it comes to the Asian American students on campus. Columbia has many graduate students or graduate schools. And I know, like, for example, the medical school, the Asian American group signed on. So I'm like, shout out to them. And I can only speak from my perspective of my graduate school. But I think you named it earlier. I think it's just graduate students or certain graduate students, especially professional students, whether for financial reasons, they don't want to lose their job or they don't want to speak up um, or they really do believe, but they just want to stay silent, preserve whatever career i can imagine if i was outside of the school context and didn't wasn't in this community i would feel really gaslit i would feel really alone um the united states has a way of through all the propaganda has a way of making you feel like alone and crazy for thinking and supporting palestine well there's a quite a bit of talk at these days i find this personally to be quite troubling that you know people there are or people who are um, targeting college students or law students and saying like, uh, you know, there's this thing about Harvard Law School, right? And saying, we're not going to hire any of these people. I think there was also a case of NYU student, right? Who was sort of lost Mm -hmm. a job. And that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, I think that these things do have a chilling effect, right? Um, I do think that that is their intent. The intent is to chill, right? Or else they wouldn't. And so my question to you though is like how much do you feel that right like how much like you're in graduate school you're at a very expensive and very fancy school that should set you up for a very nice career that's why you went there i imagine you didn't go there because you you, uh, love the football team or something like that right like you went there because it's a prestigious institution it's going to set you up to do the type of work you want to do among the students, like, how often is it discussed about, you know, like, this idea, like, hey, this is pretty dangerous. We might, we might lose any future opportunities. We might be censured in this type of way. Like, how, how front center is that in your minds? You know, I'm going to be honest. It's a real factor. And I think it's one of the reasons I have, pri- like, shut deactivated or privated most of my social media, online presence. I think, I don't know if people know this or listeners know this, but there has, the past few weeks, there was a truck going around displaying student names, doxing students, their full names. We have malicious um, websites dropping people's information and names and calling on employers to fire us so i think that is real i really want to acknowledge that it's real and that's something i am personally feeling and i don't want to minimize or dismiss it i think i think all of us are taking common sense uh anti-doxing privacy steps and but i also think despite this fear that i feel every day i know that my safety is in the collective and that my safety is in the larger numbers of people. I always feel this, even before protests. I always feel nervous. I'm like, oh my goodness, what if no one shows up? I'd be alone. This is going to be really isolating. But the immediate after it starts and we see this large group of people, I immediately feel safe again. It's really, really real. It's scary. And this repression of speech 
and free speech just generally because we have seen um, people outside of school getting fired. Right. We're seeing public defender organizations in New York City firing people or censuring the unions for speaking out about Palestine. And I think it's really troubling from a free speech perspective. I think it harkens back to the era of McCarthyism. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like, I mean, the obvious corollary to McCarthyism is an interesting idea to me, but I also feel like that there is less strength in what is happening now, you know, and maybe it's me being naive about it, but I tend to just think that these moves, and I think about it in the context of the media, obviously, right? Like, because that's where I work and um, some people have been fired for doing Instagram posts or whatever and mm-hmm. um, or signing open letters. And my sense of that has always just been that like, oh, that's like kind of like, yeah, yes, I am troubled, right? But I also feel like it is not a sign of strength from these institutions that they're doing this, right? It's a sign of fear in a lot of ways and that like they feel like they have to actually suppress this to to, Mm -hmm. as a form of appeasement in some sort of way but also as a sense of insecurity within the institution themselves that they might face consequences or they might you know they might actually like i don't know i think some of them Mm -hmm. sincerely probably think that like they have you know like they have too many woke kids or something like that inside of their ranks and that they need to do some sort of like house cleaning uh, of those ranks it, and that this is a way to do it. But I don't, I find that the centrist stuff right now is really just like, I find it concerning, but I also just find it to be totally unsustainable. You know, like I find mm-hmm. the idea that one could look at a poll that shows that like 56% of Americans don't approve of the way that Joe Biden has handled the war, not to mention mm-hmm. 70% of young people between the ages of 18 and 34 who are actually going to vote that 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 those types of numbers as they increase right because they have been increasing since october 7th that those institutions would not at some point just look around and be like okay i think we've lost the plot here a little bit like i find that hard to believe that a that i it's a bit of a contradiction because i a kind of find it hard to believe that they'll look around and actually make that conclusion but i also think it'll become more and more untenable for them to do so, right? And so in the context of student protests, I think that what is interesting to me is that like, look, we have, you know, we're about to go away for break, right? Or at least you guys are, and then you're going to come back. And like, what is that going to look like in the next semester? Like, what is the plans for the future for your for your organization? Like, what are you guys going to be doing? Yeah, Absolutely. And before I answer that, I just wanted to respond quickly to what you said about the insecurity of these institutions. And I think you hit the nail on the head because someone said this to me and I thought it was really resonate for me that an ideology or position that is secure wouldn't be doing this kind of censorship, trying to fire students for their views, wouldn't be policing everyday behaviors. And I think you're totally right that this is not a secure position. And I think they're scared. They're scared of the power of the youth. They're scared of our us. And we're going to keep showing. And I yeah, think yeah. it's like, true. I mean, just a Columbia specific example. I remember when I was in school there, there was sometimes guys who would hang around the gates on 116th Street, you know, and they would hand out socialist pamphlets. <laughs> and like, <laughs> nobody ever censured them because they weren't, a, you know, like, they're not, the institution is not worried. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's some irony here because of, you know, New York City, Columbia, everything like that. But like in 2004, whatever year it was, I think it was 2003, 2004, Columbia was not like worried about being overtaken by, by socialists who were handing out pamphlets, right? So they're just uh-huh. like, let them just do what they're doing. And that is, of course, like a, like now, regardless of whether you, believe in the things that were in that pamphlet like you know like i think everyone can work can acknowledge that columbia university in 2004 was probably not that worried about like the political foment of something like that right like but Mm -hmm. they're but i feel like when they do make these things that it's always you know that there is something that they're worried about um Mm -hmm. but yeah so yeah yeah what what, what's the plan for the future here like what are you guys gonna do yeah for sure we're just getting started i think we're just getting started and i think um, so as SJP and JVP said in their public statement, keep an eye on Columbia because we 
are just getting started. And I think something we talked about as a coalition when we formed was we were actually very explicitly clear about this in our values as well, is that we are forming right now for the cause of Palestinian liberation. We're not going anywhere. That we are acting in a collective basis and a democratic basis that is constantly listening to our student coalition represents already over 3,000 students. And that's a lot of voices, you know, to get in a room and to make sure it's heard and to mobilize. So we are, we know how universities use breaks to slow students down. We know how all of us are also, we're not full-time organizers. We're also students, right? right? We have to pass our classes um, because that's another way Columbia tries to get us, right? And chill student speech through academic sanctions. Um, So we're just getting started and we're going to do this in a collective, strategic, sustainable way um, until we see a free Palestine and justice and liberation everywhere. Um, So we're getting started. Okay, I have two more questions. The first is actually quite important, I think, which is like, in terms of the way in which you organize this protest, right? um, I understand, like what, and this is something that I've, think about quite a bit in terms of protests in general, which is that we now have this thing, and I do think it's appropriate at times, but I do think that there can sometimes be a type of, uh, you know, doctrinaire way that people go about it that is somewhat counterproductive, but that, um, how do you, like, who do you choose to center? I really hate that word because I feel like it's like meaningless, like, oh, this person is centering themselves. Like, what does that mean? You know, like, but like, who, how does a coalition choose who to put forward. I think that the idea, at least in terms of the way in which people are responding to this, right, this this story at Columbia specifically in terms of the administration shutting down groups, that part of the outrage or part of the reason why it seems, um, and they're you know, like, one can argue that this is like wrong to think this way, right? But the idea that it would shut down a Jewish organization, right? Like a mm-hmm. Jewish journal organization, I think it's powerful. And I will say that as somebody who has been observing all the protests that go on, you know, I've spent much of my career sort of looking and going to and writing about protests in general, which is that like these, the images are very powerful when it's, you know, like it's Grand Central Station, for example, right? That you have like, mm-hmm. uh, like Jewish organizations shutting down Grand Central Station, right? Um, you have, and like these are the same organizations that I used to see during the um, Trump administration when there was the whole issue of what was glibly called like kids in cages, right? Like these groups would show up and they would protest, they would protest ICE and they would make the same argument, right? Which is not in our name. You are not going to commit, you're not going to create these concentration camps along the border in our name, right? And we are going to show up to protest that. Like it's a very powerful type of thing. Like how do you make decisions based on that? Like I'm really interested in that just because you're a Korean dude, right? I'm a Korean dude. And I will say that sometimes in terms of this issue itself, right? Like I think, um, it sometimes it's hard to situate yourself, right? <laughs> like, unless you sort of go back and be like, well, Korea was also a colony and I feel that way. Like, I think that you feel that way, but I think that a lot of people probably are just like, I don't know, man, that's like kind of a stretch, right? Not to say it is a stretch, but that they would think that way. Like, how do you sort of, how do you sort of deal with this like idea? Who, who, who are we going to put forward? Who are we going to center in, in, in this coalition? Just from personal experience, as someone who did organizing, before school, at the place I organized, one of the big principles we operated by was centering directly impacted people. And I think sometimes people misunderstand that to mean we are only going to take orders from the directly impacted people and that they should only dictate all of our strategy. I think that's a misinterpretation of that principle of centering directly. Because our coalition too, operates under the principle of centering directly. Right. Um, But for me, that principle means partnership. You know, there's that quote, I forget who said it, but there's that quote of, if you are here to save me, I don't need you. But if you are here to fight for my liberation alongside me, welcome, let's walk together. Right. And I think similarly for me, partnership and centering directly impacted people 
is that making sure that directly impacted people are obviously at the center and are consulted on everything. But we are working together as partners. We're not working here as saviors. We're not working as them top-down ordering. This coalition specifically, I think because of the circumstances that our coalition was formed under, we are centering uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, Students for Justice in Palestine, and the large collective of Palestinian students that live and attend Columbia's campus. And for us, we believe that impacted groups should always have consultation power or they should always be consulted on any strategic decisions that the coalition makes. Um, and I think that's something we built into our internal governing and operating principles. And I really want to explicitly name that this struggle at Columbia would not be possible without our Jewish comrades who are facing deep harassment. Um, I just want to say like deep harassment um, from outside agitators and members of our own community who call our Jewish comrades, quote, traitors, who call, who spit on them, who exclude them from spaces that are theoretically supposed to be for them, you know? And I think this shutting down Jewish Voice for Peace was particularly troubling because it's one of the only anti-Zionist spaces or anti-Zionist, or it's only, it's one of the only spaces for Jewish people who identify as anti-Zionist, where they can hold Shabbat and where they can um, practice their religion. And so full unconditional, unequivocal solidarity with JVP, SJP, and the Palestinian students. And that's something our coalition um, operates by at this moment. How, how do you, you know, like one of the theoretical questions that I use the term theoretical intentionally because I don't know if it's real or not, right? But I think that there's this question of whether or not that type of um, centering or that type of, or that type of, I guess, centering of the impacted people, right? Whether or not that might dilute the larger protests in general, right? And I think that, like, I don't know how I personally feel about it, despite the fact that I've thought about this quite a bit, because I go back and forth. It certainly can remember times when I was protests in between, whatever, 2014, 2020, where I felt like this was happening at some level. And then there were times when I would look around and I'd be like, well, there's 20,000 people here. How powerful could it possibly be if all these people came out, right? Like, that's sort of the question here. And the reason why I asked that is because when I was looking, I did this piece about the sort of the the, the divestment practice, the, the divestment anti-apartheid protest at Wesleyan College, for example, in like 1990, right? And this this sort of lurid story around it, but that's not important. The thing is that I went back, I looked at all the archives and I saw, and it's like a lot of students that you would expect to be at Wesleyan, which are like kind of wealthy white students, right? And they are fully engaged in this type of thing. And the thought that I had was that like, maybe it's possible, maybe the reason why this was so popular amongst these students and that it went on so long was because rather than sort of centering the students, right, which would have been difficult at the time because, like, you're talking about something that's happening in South Africa, right? It's here in the United States, and unless you had students who were from South Africa, then it would be hard to center them. That there was this sort of idea of, like, okay, our only goal here is to make the university divest because what we're doing is addressing something that is wrong and harmful, um, around the world. And then there's this big analogy to our own lives here in the United States and we can center that. Right. Um, but that there were, the call was broader than it might be now. Right. With all this sort of centering stuff and everything like that. Um, I don't know what, like, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think is like, do you think, cause what has struck me is that like the analogy of Palestine is so powerful. The, the idea that, um, people can understand it, right? Ta-Nehisi Coates, for example, went on Democracy Now! and he talked to Amy Goodman about it. And he said that when he went to Gaza, like he could, or he went to the West Bank, he could, he could set, he could see the analogy to his own life or to his own people's lives. And it was powerful. Like it was very powerful to him. 
Mm. And um, I don't know. I, I guess I just wonder what the way in which like a student organization, people who are sort of at the center of all of this, I do think this is going to be 1968 all over again. I do think like, for example, the DNC is going to get protested. I do think that there's going to be great divisions amongst young and old people who are all Democrats and the old people are going to scream at the young people. You're going to bring Trump around in the same way that they screamed, you're going to bring Nixon around. And then Nixon won, right? How does that question of internationalism come into all of this? It's one that, you know, I, the part that was always the most interesting to me about the um, anti-apartheid divestment protests in the 90s, 80s and 90s was that it wasn't just in the United States. It wasn't just in elite colleges, like uh, that it was, it did have footholds in other countries. Um, and what you have right now is you have this sort of international protest movement. And I don't think it's all connected, but I think that you see it in Indonesia, you saw it in Ireland, you see it in Germany, you see it in France, you see it all over the world in a way that is quite powerful, but we are witnessing it almost through video images of lots of people standing around somewhere. Like that's how we sort of see it, right? You see Los Angeles, you see uh, San Francisco, you see all these cities across the United States as well. And that basically we're just watching like drone shots or people standing on bridges and watching people walk by. Like that's sort of the way in which it. How do, in terms of student organizing specifically, like how does that how do you turn that into the divestment demand? Like, how do you sort of make that into one singular demand amongst students? Now, it doesn't mean that every single person at these protests is a student. They certainly are not. Like, they will have their own types of goals with this. But within the student part of it, right? Like, how do you turn that energy into something like what happened in the, in the late 80s, early 90s and across campuses around the world? You know, I think you're asking the million-dollar question and I think something that's what we're trying to figure out as a coalition of how to harness and translate this level of energy, enthusiasm, orgs reaching out every single day. How can we offer our energy, our time, our money to support you in this struggle? And I think that's something we as a coalition are trying to figure out how to channel in a way that's strategic, collective. And I don't really have a good answer for you, except that I think we really believe in diversity of actors, diversity of tactics, and that this movement is interdependent. Um, but I think but you do believe it, that divestment demand is the right overall framing for this, and at least in terms of students. I think so for students. And I think that's something, as students at Columbia, that is something we are united around. Obviously, again, we're going to keep calling for a ceasefire. Right, right, we're right. Keep but, calling for all but, these, but divestment is the overarching. And the reason for that is because it is the one thing. It is achievable, but it is also like personalized for the students themselves, right? Like the, the idea that, okay, this is my money going to it and you have to stop using my money this way, as opposed to like exactly, a more abstract exactly. call for the U.S. government to do something where they're like, I don't know, Columbia students. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. It's a, it, it is a very interesting question. It's one, and that's why I wanted to speak to somebody from your organization, because I just think that there's this, we have this question about, well, what is, what are these big spontaneous protests around the world do? What do they mean? Right. How are they, what change have they actually affected? And I think their criticisms are not criticisms because I don't think it is of any fault of the people who are the organizers of these types of actions, but this idea that perhaps social media protests in the social media era is much more large in numbers and it is much more ephemeral in terms of its actual lasting impact and its sustainability, right? Like that, that the big, sh that the show is there, but that the, but that the, but that the actual policies of the politics sometimes don't always follow, or at least in a way that is proportional to the, to the amazing show, right? And that mm -hmm. divestment is an interesting thing to me, and student organizing is an interesting thing to me, because it seems like it is a little bit more sustainable, because you can always just point to the investment sheet and say, you haven't divested yet, right? Like, it's not mm -hmm. like saying, 
it's not like pointing at Americans say you haven't eradicated white supremacy yet, which would be, you know, it's a good thing if that happened. Right. But like, how do you even begin to quantify oh. that? So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, like, is it like, just talk to me a little bit about, I don't mean to like, sort of just tell you what my ideas on things are in, in the lieu of questions, but I don't know, like, like, it, like, how does that, how does divestment sort of fit into more long-term vision of all of this? Like, um, and, and a sustainable protest. Yeah. And I think question and point about this larger question of like, do these massive protests work, right? And happen or like how, and as, as someone who attended the National March on Palestine, or National March in DC for Palestine. And I think, you know, from Columbia, we sent two buses down, about 100 plus students down. I think to that question, I think protests help, at least these national ones, help make us feel less alone, or the citywide ones. They help us make feel us less alone. They empower us. They agitate us. But like you said, I think change is going to happen home by home, workplace by workplace, school by school. And I think in this localized environment of the school, I think this is where divestment is central. And this is our contribution as students, um, that we as students are not going to be complicit um, in. And so that's, I think, how I'm imagining. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. Like, I always think that the point of these large protests is so that people can rediscover their principles, not to say that they've lost them, but to feel more affirmed in them and to just see other people who feel the same way. And that, and also you know, to scare the people in power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the big shows matter, right? It's just like a question of how much. Uh, I don't know. At some point, like I, 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 I guess I just am concerned about this. As you know, again, as somebody who feels that protest is the most important thing, you know, in American speech, and it's like I sometimes worry that uh, that that part of it might start to die down the more of these that happen, you know, and then just sort of flare up and disappear. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Um, again, a message to our listeners. Tammy's going to be back next week and for the next few weeks until the middle of December. Um, and if you would like to, we're going to have all the materials from uh, this organization in our show notes and if you would like to reach out to us it is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com um, until next week well, thanks for coming on thank you so much One.